Welcome, TTB community. I am Bob Demena, and here with me, as always, is the headstrong Elliot Shibley. Headstrong, okay. All right. So, what do we have going on today? Well, as always, we're, we've been partnering up with Minivan of Memories, and he's got a pretty awesome platform for travelers to post a short blog about their trip without actually having to do the legwork and maintain their own blog. We're really excited about our partnership with Little Passports, and they're a pretty cool program where you get little pieces of information, activities from across the world, different countries, different cultures, and they're geared towards different age groups of kids. If I were, you know, 20 years younger, I'd be very interested in them. I'm actually still interested in them. I was going to say, I'm pretty interested in them right now. (laughs) And check out our website. We have some travel-related products from different sites, and we've got an Audible trial. It's 30 days, and you get the book at the end for free. And there's also some interesting Kindle uh, books and other things that you can read on there as well. All right, everyone. So today's guest is the co-director of the Cambodian Archaeological LIDAR Initiative. She has a published paper in the Journal of Archaeological Science titled Evidence for the Breakdown of an Ang." Korean hydraulic system and its historical implications for understanding the Khmer Empire. And I believe Khmer is the correct pronunciation of that. Let's hope. Um, yeah. So in our conversation today, we covered a few topics ranging from her work uh, in Kokur, the former capital of the Khmer Empire in Cambodia. Uh, we went over just general archaeology. We went, talked about Angkor Wat and uh, some tourism to Cambodia. She was a ton of fun to talk to. Super smart, super knowledgeable um, about about archaeology, specifically in Cambodia. And Elliot and I had a pretty good history lesson uh, on this episode. So without further introduction, please welcome our next guest, Dr. Sarah Klassen. Welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint. Start designing your next adventure. Sarah, welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint. Uh, So I want to first congratulate you on successfully defending your dissertation last year. That is an awesome, awesome accomplishment. Thank you. Based on the website you sent us, uh, you traveled quite extensively in your lifetime. And even though I really want to talk about all the trips you've been on, currently your research focuses on water management, adaptive capacity, and resilience in medieval Southeast Asia, which brings us to what we want to talk about today, Angkor Wat, Kokher, and the Khmer Empire, and your research using LIDAR throughout Cambodia. So before we get into all of that really fun stuff, I just want to know, how did you get into anthropology and archaeology? What kind of prompted you to go through 12 years of postgraduate, or not postgraduate, but secondary schooling and make this your career? That's an excellent question. What inspires someone to do something like that? Um, <laughs> no, I've always, so I've always really liked history and being an anthropologist and archaeologist, you get to write a book on history. And there's something really special about being in the fields, being on the archaeological sites and uh, discovering materials that haven't been seen or touched in a thousand years, thousands of years, um, depending on what type of site you're working on. Yeah, that's really cool. I know I always loved the Indiana Jones and that's like my first exposure to archaeology. And I, I don't know, really know of many other famous archaeologists or anthropologists beyond that. And no. I'm, I'm fairly certain those are documentaries, not like action films. Yeah, well, I've been fascinated with archaeology too. And I've read several books on archaeology, but it was always like the, the final product, the finished novel on whether it's Machu Picchu or, or Roman um, architecture. And so reading your paper was really cool for me because it was like, it was the first time that I had a snippet into real the actual real work behind um, something that I'm that I've always been really interested in. So this is really cool, and I'm and I'm happy to talk to you today. Yeah, it's true. Archaeologists, we spend a lot of time kind of talking talking to each other about our research, but we need to do a better job doing more popular books and popular articles, and engaging with more people outside of our discipline. On the research well, yeah. that we're doing. Hopefully, this is a great medium to do that with. Uh, um, So why don't we get into the Khmer Empire and Cambodia? What prompted you to go to Cambodia and research the Khmer Empire? Is it an empire or was it like just a, how big was it? It was big. It 
at its extent, it covered most of mainland Southeast Asia. Okay. So very, very vast in terms of the amount of land that it controlled. Um, so what inspired me to work at Angkor in Southeast Asia? Um, after I graduated from undergrad, I spent a year teaching English in South Korea. Um, so that was my first time in Asia, and I really, really loved it during that time. I traveled to China and Japan. And then the school that I was teaching English at actually went out of business like two months before the end of the year um, and two months before I was set to start graduate school. So a couple of my friends from college, you know, we took the opportunity. They came out and joined me, and then we traveled around Southeast Asia for a couple months, and it was spectacular. So I went into graduate school thinking that I was going to work in a different region. Um, and then, you know, having had this travel experience, I did everything in my power to kind of transition into Southeast Asia. That's kind of awesome. I wish I had that kind of opportunity. Yeah, that's one of my favorite regions of the world, Southeast Asia. I've been to Thailand. That's it. But um, Cambodia, Laos and Vietnam are very high on my list. And Cambodia was always on my list for Angkor Wat. And I... I've never really put in too much research into the history of the empire that occupied it, but now your paper has sort of sparked that interest and I'm going to do more research on my own. Uh, what I didn't realize was, and correct me if I'm wrong, but your your paper is re- around the idea that um, power in this region, I guess, wasn't always in Angkor Wat, right? It transitioned to a different area. And you believe that the reason they moved that power was because of uh, the way that they were able to control the water in that region, right? Um, do you, you probably, you definitely can explain it way better than me. Uh, <laughs> do you, do you want to do that? Right. So Angkor is famous for Angkor Wat, which um, most people don't realize is one temple of thousands of temples in Cambodia. And it's the largest of these. So Angkor Wat is actually just a big temple, which is in the middle of a big city, which um, for most of the, the time period of the Khmer Empire was the capital. So the city that um, was home to Angkor Wat was the capital for over 600 years, except for a brief 16-year time period when another ruler, Jayavarman IV, moved the capital to Kaker. So Kaker is the only other city in the Khmer Empire to ever be the capital. Uh, which makes it really interesting. And then in the paper that you're referring to, we looked at the water management system and the types of changes they made to the water system when it was the capital and kind of evaluated those choices. How how do you know that the capital is, is there a written history, Kamaram? So there, there are inscriptions. Um, the inscriptions aren't as nice as we would like them to be in terms of explaining what's going on in the Khmer Empire. There are records of things like kingship, and major battles. Of course, the inscriptions are written by the winners of the of the battles, so you have to take them with a grain of salt. But we can um, learn things like uh, who was in power when and where the seat of power was from the inscriptions. Okay, yeah, that was one of the interesting things about visiting is that there was no written inscription. A lot of it's just told down or passed down verbal story, other influence. And so can you paint a verbal picture of the structure of Angkor Wat? And it's it's beautiful. And I'm, just, I'm assuming a lot of people that are listening to this probably already have an idea of what it looks like. But can you describe it, uh, you know, based on your experiences there? Yeah. So um, first of all, it's absolutely massive. Most people don't, even after visiting, don't realize that the central tower is 200 meters above the ground surface. This is an engineering. <laughs> and then in addition to um, being a temple, it's also it also is an occupation space. So people were living within the grounds of the temple, um, which is part of the reason why it's so big. So the temple itself is about um, 175 by um, 200 meters. But the enclosure is over a kilometer by a kilometer. And then surrounding the enclosure, it's very large moat. And this moat is man-made. All of this is, you know, constructed by man. Um, the moat is 200 meters across. Um, so it's really kind of spectacular, the engineering work that went into the construction of this temple. Yeah. And roughly what time period was this? Um, so Angkor Wat was built during the reign of Suryavarman II in the 12th century. Uh, we don't know the exact dates, but we think it probably took around 30 years to build, beginning with 
12th century. And that's a roughly quick construction given that given the size and technology that they have. Absolutely. It's remarkable. And it's built of um, sandstone blocks that were being kind of shipped down to Angkor from over 100 kilometers away. And we actually have archaeological evidence suggesting that the blocks that were used to build Angkor Wat were chipped into the correct shape where they were um, quarried. So think oh, about that wow. level of organization that was needed to kind of design these blocks in the correct shape 100 kilometers away from their eventual construction site. And to do all of it still within 30 years. Exactly. Because it's not like they were able to text each other. <laughs> right. Yeah. No texting. And, no. <laughs> I, and to put the 12th century into context, I just looked it up. It's the Middle Ages in, in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, I was trying to get an idea of where that fell into history. I don't know of anything else really significant that was. But um, And so one of the big appeals with Angkor Wat and I guess this region, um, the, the structure's being taken back by nature, which is really cool. Um, But so in this area, is this the largest temple in Southeast Asia? Yeah, this is potentially the largest temple in the world. Um, Many have referred to it as the largest religious structure in the world. Wow. I didn't realize it was that significant. Because I, again, I mentioned this earlier, but I'm not familiar with Southeast Asia much. I've never traveled there. And I've seen many, many pictures of Angkor Wat and some of the other temples in Cambodia, but I had no idea that it was A, that size, because pictures don't really do it justice, and B, I didn't realize it was the capital of this empire for 600 years. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think even tourism to Cambodia is relatively new. I, I, I don't know a lot about the modern history of like what, what happened recently there, but I don't think it was safe too long ago. And now that it, it is, people are sort of flocking to Cambodia to see mainly Angkor Wat. And um, from what I understand, now is a really good time to go because they don't have very strict tourism policies and you can kind of just get free roam of the area. Is that correct? Yeah. So um, the city was had a pretty brutal civil war in the 1970s, which restricted um, tourists from visiting and also researchers from being able to do research at the site, which is one of the reasons why it's not as well known as some of its companions. Um but yeah, so the tourism industry is a um, big part of the economy of Cambodia. It's become a very, very popular tourist site. Uh, in terms of having free reign, it definitely depends on the tools that you visit. So a lot of people don't realize that Angkor Wat is one of, you know, probably 10 to 20 really spectacular um, large stone temples that are built in the region of Angkor, so in the region of Siemri. But then beyond that, there are dozens of temples across the landscape that are kind of spectacular in their own way that are also worth visiting. And any one of these sites would be a world... Um, uh, the UNESCO. A UNESCO say. World Heritage Site and kind of worth visiting um, on its own. But because there's kind of a richness of temples, um, most people don't get far beyond Angkor Wat. Um, and so then also the level of regulation at all of the temples is kind of dependent on the number of tourists that visit them. Okay. And yeah, I, I mean, I was listening to actually another travel podcast at one point and they visited this area and instead of hanging around Angkor Wat, they wandered off to a different temple and I guess were able to climb up to their own little area and watch the sunset. And they basically said that they were unobstructed. They just walked right up and there was really no one stopping them. Um, wow. It, yeah, I, I, I'm not going to encourage people to climb on the temples. However, um, depending on which ones you go, which ones you go to, you can pretty much have them to yourself. So there, as I said, there are probably kind of the five main ones that are visited by all of the tourists. But then once you kind of venture beyond those, there's your opportunities to have really kind of personal um, experiences with the temples. Okay. And you're the region that you had done a lot of research in, that was Kukher? Yeah, so I've done a lot of comparative comparative work looking at Angkor and looking at Kukher. The two cities are really interesting because, you know, Angkor thrived for centuries and Kukher was only occupied as the capital of the Khmer Empire for about 16 years. So the different timescales of the two provided a really interesting case study for looking at their water management systems and looking at what decisions were being made to construct specific types of features. Okay. Was Kukher occupied much after it was transitioned back to Angkor Wat, when the capital was transitioned back to? That's a good question. So before, um, so I'll preface this by saying that we've really only been doing, we've only had active research programs at Kukher for probably the last kind of five to seven years. 
And before that, very little was known about the site. And part of this was because um, there were a lot of landmines in the area from the Civil War in the 1970s that had been cleared recently. So it was really difficult um, for tourists to visit, but also for researchers um, to be on the ground doing work. Okay. So kind of leading up until this period, the, the general consensus was that Kakera was, you know, there was no occupation there. Jayabarm IV built this city out of nowhere. And then when Jayabarm IV uh, passed away and the capital returned to Angkor, um, everyone left Kakera. But we're now finding a lot of evidence suggesting that there was a long period of occupation, both before and after it was the capital. Okay. And some of the, some of the, uh, help early on back in 2012 there was uh lidar that was used to kind of discover and cut through and essentially peel off layers of vegetation and allow you to see a lot of the man-made structures digitally uh, how what is lidar first of all and how has it aided in research and discovery of the root of care so lidar we did it um airborne laser scanning which is also called lidar uh, the way that the technology works is we um, strap a piece of equipment to a helicopter, essentially, and then fly over the archaeological site in a grid pattern. And as we're flying, the device is shooting these laser beams down um, onto the ground surface. So these areas that we're working on, it's very dense jungle. It's hard to um, kind of walk around through the jungle to see what's on the landscape, but the vegetation also obscures the ground surface because it's so thick and so dense. So the way that the LIDAR works is um, if you've ever been kind of standing in a heavy forest and then you can kind of see beams of light coming through, coming down between the leaves, LIDAR finds all of those little areas um, where the light pulses can reach all the way down to the ground and then return back to the device. And based on the amount of time it takes to do that, we can reconstruct what the ground surface looks like and create really high-resolution elevation models. And then using those elevation models, we can see where there are man-made mounds and man depressions, which are reservoirs and other features like temples, dikes, uh, things like that. That's really cool. They, I remember reading an article either last year or two years ago that they were using LIDAR to discover or maybe even rediscover temples in southern Mexico that they had didn't even know were there. Um, but LIDAR is a recent use abroad only because it was considered a military technology. Because it's yeah. been around in the U.S. for a little while. But that was it. They wouldn't allow us to use it anywhere else because it was, yeah, because it had military use. I, I read a book of, on the use of LIDAR technology in Honduras to discover old temples. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, those are my colleagues, uh, Chris, Chris Fisher. Oh, really? The, yeah. the, the Lost City of the Monkey God? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's, that's so funny. Cool. That was a good book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is funny. Yeah, the, I guess the, the author went, went into the field with them while they were doing their Right, story, yeah. So. Uh, what was his name? Douglas Preston? That sounds yeah. right, yeah. Does it sound right? Yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed that book. That was actually an introduction to, I guess, uh, more information on LIDAR. I, I knew what it was at the time, but that's sort of the first time I read anything on on it being used that way uh, for archaeology and was really interesting. Yeah, the first survey, the first um, use of it for archaeology was actually in the weeds at the site of Caracol um, oh, by my okay. my colleagues, um, Diane and Arlen Chase. And they actually teamed, I, I believe, um, they teamed up with a team of biologists who were, they were going to do the survey and they're like, why don't we do this over an archaeological site to see if it uh, reveals any archaeology? which it did. So us as archaeologists, we use a LIDAR to look at the ground surface for archaeological features, but you can also use it to see what the canopy looks like. So you can identify which types of trees are growing where, and um, do all sorts of really interesting studies in terms of habitats for the types of animals. So there are multiple uses for the LIDAR. Yeah, wow. LIDAR seems to be a really powerful. Very powerful, yes. It does not penetrate the ground surface, correct? Correct. Okay. But we do have other technologies that do that. Um, ground penetrating radar is <laughs> kind of the name. Um, so I said last year, I just got back from the field from Kakere. So we have the LIDAR data. And then based on the results of the LIDAR data, we picked areas to do ground penetrating radar. So it's kind of the next phase of remotely sensed data. And then based on the results from that, we can do very specific and targeted excavations. So we can really limit the areas that we're disturbing using traditional archaeological methods instead of having to open up 
big areas to understand what's happening on the landscape. And I am a little bit familiar with, with ground penetrating radar. And basically what that is, it, it shoots um, radar down, right? And it, you get a bounce back. And then depending on, you can see changes in soil types and soil disturbances and then even structures, right? Uh, underground, yeah. I guess, depending on the, the, the way the... I'm doing this, we're on a podcast, but <laughs> the, the differences in the layers, I guess, appear on a screen. And then that gives you an idea of what could be underneath of the ground, right? Is that right, yeah. We, yeah. See, we see different reflections. And then based on those reflections, you can get an idea of what might be, might be underground. So is that, I've never used ground penetrating radar, but I have used a fish finder. Is it like that? <laughs> I don't um, know what a fish finder is. Uh, they is that in the water? Yeah, they basically sit under the boat and I, I think they shoot radar down as well. And then you get like a little image of the top of the fish and kind of see the size of it. And you can also, you get the bathymetry of the bottom of the lake or sea. Okay, yeah, uh, so it would be sim- similar concept. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to jump back to Kaker and talk more about the significance of that and how slash why it was the capital for 16 because they built this massive uh, water retention system on a stream. And just you give us a little bit of the size and scale of the dam that they built. Yeah, so they um, one of the most significant water management features that they built was a seven-kilometer-long dike to the north of the city. Um, this was an absolutely massive feature in some areas. Uh, it was over 100 meters across. Um, so kind of a seven kilometer long dike, 100 meters across. It also functioned as a road into the city. So in addition to providing water, things like irrigation and um, as a source of protein, fish, it also would have been this really spectacular entryway into the city. So you're kind of like walking into the city, you see the big temples up ahead of you. And then on the right would have been the largest body of water, man-made body of water in the empire at that point in time. So this is built before some of the larger features in the Angkor Reels. So it was really an engineering. Wow. And they this was kind of like the first time they'd ever done something of that size. In your opinion, how they're kind of inexperienced actually leading the of the dike and the eventual collapse of it and then kind of in the way and back to the capital of Angkor. Right. So using the LIDAR data, we can see very clear evidence that the embankment overtopped and breached. Um, so we can see it in several areas, and there's a chute and a spillway, which are features of dikes today, actually. Um, so the spillway, we can see in the LiDAR data that it failed, and it failed quite catastrophically <laughs> to the point that um, there were 100-pound laterite blocks they used to build it, and we found some of these laterite blocks hundreds of meters downstream. So when this feature washed out, washed out it went it went out in spectacular fashion. So using the high-resolution uh, elevation data, we were able to model the capacity of the dike. And then using contemporary hydrology, we were able to understand how much water would have been entering the dike, whether or not the, the outlets were large enough to let um, all of the water that was going into the dike out of the dike in time before the embankment uh, overtopped. Okay, wow. That's really cool. And in that spillway, that was in your paper, you mentioned that it was actually fairly narrow and there might have been another causeway or a bridge that was kind of... Because the Empire did use a lot of elephant. Yeah, this is one of the mysteries and we're not quite sure um, how this worked. But yeah, the the chute would have been um, basically, I don't know if you, if you can imagine a chute from a contemporary dike, but... Um, an outlet. So the embankment wall was, uh, I think it's about 20 meters, 10 meter, I think it was 10 meters deep. Um, so because this was a road, people would have to get over that outlet in some way. And we don't know how they did it because we don't see evidence for a bridge. We thought maybe there was a bridge and we actually excavated to see if there was a bridge and there was no bridge. (laughs) Um, so it's possible that there was a wooden bridge. Um, but yeah. You know, if the king is passing by on the embankment with his elephants, there has to be some way of getting from one side of the chute to the other side of the chute. That's so cool. Yeah, it's so interesting. And so why didn't they, didn't they just rebuild it and stay there? Yeah, so that's, that's we're not quite sure either. One of the problems is once the um, embankment fails, it's actually difficult to reconstruct it because the flow of the water changes. So then you have to build kind of a different dike um, in order to harness those flows again. 
Um, we, we have a lot of questions. One of the questions is why did they build the dike where they built it? Because they actually built the embankment on low ground. If they had built it, um, you know, a couple kilometers uh, to the east, they could have utilized pre-existing high ground. But then the dike and the, the road on top of the dike wouldn't have aligned perfectly with the temple when we were entering the city. So we're thinking that there might be some um, aesthetic constraints that determined where this feature was built, which may have ultimately contributed to its failure. So it's, you should, shouldn't always go for beauty over pragmatism. Right. Well, and there are other things that um, could have been done to prevent the dike from overtopping, but it's possible that because this was the largest dike um, that had been built, they weren't, they didn't have enough time for experimenting to make sure that the size of the outlets were large enough. And are you, do you plan on going back to research? Because right now you're currently back in the States. Um, when do you head back to, if you do? So I just finished up the field season in April. <laughs> so oh, I'm okay. just coming down off of that. So it takes, whenever we work in the field, it takes us um, usually at least six months for every month that we're working in the field to go through all of the data that we collect, write up the results, and then publish the results from that. So for the next six months or so, I'll you know, be working from my computer, kind of going through everything that we collected last field season. And then hopefully we'll go back later this year um, okay. to do some more work. Do you have any other archaeological sites in your in your sites? Um, so I'm, most of my work right now is at Kakar. I have been doing work at Angkor. Um, I don't have any active field programs there right now, but we have a lot of digital data. Uh, from the LIDAR and from other um, data sets that we have. So there's more research that we're working on there in terms of how the land was being utilized, what urban, urbanism looked like, how urbanization expanded across the region. Um, so we're, we're, we have our hands full, I guess, with pre-existing data there that we're still trying to go through. Uh, but in it's- addition to that, um, our project also collected LIDAR data at six other sites in Cambodia. And we're in the process of mapping those, ground verifying those, and hope to have that published later this year. It's awesome. So we're and, and I know, I know, yeah, <laughs> I know we, we run over this before, but I'm just trying to wrap my head around understanding this civilization. So you had, you had Angkor Wat as the, the big, biggest temple, the, the largest temple in the world, the largest religious temple in the world, but then surrounding it was a city. Are those structures still there? And how far out are they from the, the main temple? So those structures are still there. Um, within Angkor Tom and Angkor Wat, you can see very clearly delineated urban grids. So we see city blocks with house mounds and house ponds. So if you were visiting in um, the 12th century, let's say, and you went to visit Angkor Wat, let's say it had just, you know, they had just finished constructing it. Um, when you entered through the moat, you would have walked into this kind of urban area with very clearly delineated city blocks. And then um, each house was built on a mound, and they were built on mounds because the region flooded. So this was a defense against that flooding. And then in addition to that, the houses were also on stilts. So you'd see maybe three or four houses on stilts on each kind of mounded platform. And then beside each platform would be a pond, and people would be swimming in the pond, they'd be fishing in the pond, maybe there'd be water buffalo taking a drink from the pond or chilling out in the pond as well. Um, so these would have been really vibrant, lively urban areas. And then these uh, grids extend beyond the temple enclosures into the surrounding landscape. And the further you go from the major temple complexes, the density decreases. So there's um, still lots of rice fields and houses and temples, but the density is much lower inside of kind of that urban core, right? Inside Angkor and around. So a majority of the people actually lived within the moat, in in that moated area, in the moat. <laughs> in, not um, inside of the moat, but in the moat. The, yeah. <laughs> well, we don't know exactly how many people lived within within the moat. So I guess the answer is it's not the majority because this space extends so far from Angkor. So over a thousand square kilometers were heavily cultivated and occupied in this region. And that's just kind of where we drew the line to stop looking because we had to stop somewhere. So this is an arbitrary limit. But that entire thousand kilometers is has rice fields on it, has small temples with associated communities. Um, so this landscape is extremely large. So the populations within Angkor Wat itself 
um, might be in the tens of thousands, but we think that within this, this whole area was probably 500,000 to about a million. Wow. So the population is relatively small within Angkor Wat, but it's in the middle of this complex, absolutely massive complex. I'm looking at an aerial photograph of Angkor Wat and it just blows my mind. This structure is so beautiful. I mean, well, it's beautiful now. And we think that when it was built, it may have been uh, plated with gold. So you can just imagine what that would have looked like. Yeah. And just imagine how much gold would have been necessary to do that as well. Yeah. So I know it's very popular with some of the old archaeological Mexico, South America, and Italy reconstructed what it had been like. And it's, is there anything like that for Angkor Wat or Care? So we have, um, uh, we have some images and reconstructions that people have done. Um, one of my colleagues with the last name Chandler has been working on making kind of cartoons of what uh, Angkor would have looked like. So if you Google that, you can see some images of Angkor with all of the, you know, painting but he also made this um it's kind of like a video game experience where you can walk through Angkor and there are all these little avatars of people kind of walking around doing their daily tasks so that can give you um some some I can give you an idea of what's going on what it might have looked like uh, during the game do we know what ultimately killed off this empire uh, how did it end well, this is, yeah, so the question of decline is a really interesting one. Um, we think that it was actually a slow and gradual decline. Uh, there are a lot of hypotheses that have been put forward, um, and I think that the answer is that it's not a simple answer, and it's a combination of all of these different factors coming together. So uh, there was warfare, there was climate change, um, there was this extremely large and complex water management system, that may have become difficult to maintain. Um, but then there are also practical reasons. So there wasn't some kind of dramatic collapse or decline where everyone died. That's not really what happened. What happened was the political and religious relocated um, close to Phnom Penh, which is the current capital of Cambodia. And it's possible that that relocation was just based on economic reasons. So trade was becoming more important. And that area was better situated to engage with trade. Um, but it's probably a combination of all of these different types of factors. Interesting. Yeah. I find this I find this incredibly fascinating. So I don't know if you know this, but my background in undergrad was uh, landscape architecture and geography. The whole history of urbanism development, we had an entire course on, and Angkor Wat was mentioned, largely due to the fact that there wasn't a whole lot of research. But I think looking back on it, I mean, stormwater management, is fairly advanced to be able to plan for that and be able to get the water out of the city. I mean, some cities nowadays don't have adequate storm. And the urbanization, a city grid, it's its kind of fascinating to see this evolve from the 12th century. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, the scale of the water management here, so they rerouted two rivers into above ground reservoirs. One of the above ground reservoirs is eight kilometers long. Wow. Is that the one do eat? Um, it's the West Fry. Oh. So if you okay. Google the West Fry, you can see some images of it. That's still so it's fascinating. M- like, that's the one thing I'm constantly amazed by is how the sheer amount of manpower that was to create immense structures, 700, including the pyramid, over several thousand. Yeah. I just, I just imagine what we could do today with the same amount of manpower and modern tent equipment. Right. Yeah, no, it's it's very remarkable. And these are all above ground features. So these water management are sort of above above ground. That's so cool. Yeah, it's <clears throat> it's really neat. Now, your your other travels around the world, was that inspired by archaeology or was that just for fun? You've been let me see, I'm looking <laughs> at the map now. You have not been to South America yet, but you've been to every other continent. Have you been to I know, Antarctica? I'm missing South America. I have not been to Antarctica and I have not been to South America. I need to get to South America soon. Can't have this. You've hit yeah. almost everywhere in Europe. I can't even see Europe because of all your blue markers. Um, <laughs> so cool. Um, I think that's amazing. What inspired you to travel the world like that? I guess I'm an anthropologist, so I'm really curious um, about other cultures and different ways of life. Um, about the travel bug. Yeah. And it's in the more places you travel, the it kind of helps with our work too, because we start thinking about things a little bit differently. So was any of this for work other than Cambodia? Um, a lot of it. 
Yeah, it was tied into work. Um, usually when I go over to Cambodia, depending on how much time I have, I try to pop somewhere else before heading home. If you're, if you're all the way over there, you may as well take advantage. Yeah. Um, and then I had excavated in South Africa, in Honduras, in the U.S. Southwest. So those were all certainly for work. What did you find in the U.S. Southwest? In the U.S. Southwest? Yeah. Um, so we were working in... Um, just outside of Truth and Consequences in New Mexico at a Mimbris site. We were excavating Pueblo houses. So that was that was really interesting. We were excavating rooms and that were part of houses in these classic Mimbris sites. And we found some really cool things on those excavations, including one of my most memorable finds, which was this turquoise pendant. Um, and just kind of being the first person to find this turquoise pendant and hold this turquoise pendant, which would have been very valuable to whoever originally owned it, that person probably wore it every day. And to be able to to find this and hold this object, it gave me such a strong connection to the past um, and really made the past come alive. And that was just a really special experience. Yeah. I, I don't know what that would be like. I've never heard it. No, but I'm Yeah, it's trying. a simple thing, but you can imagine finding like your wedding ring or something and that's yeah. it's right now. But what is it about history that fascinates us and, and makes us want to is it is it a desire to learn from it? I, I don't know. I don't know. I think probably everyone has different reasons for being interested. I just like thinking about the different ways that people their life, like so drastically different. And yet we're all humans and we're all kind of on the same trajectory together. So I think that's pretty interesting. That is all. Well, I don't want to take us away too much for thought, but I do want to talk a little bit about your kind of daily flow. What is it like when you get there? And it seems like you're usually on site for about a month, uh, but what's your like daily route? What is your kind of housing like? Is it comfortable? Do you have, do you have spas there? so it all depends on where we're working and what we're doing um so when i'm working in the angkor region i did a lot of work to ground verify some of the temples that we identified with the lidar data so when we're staying in siem reap because it's such a tourist hub there are plenty of options and plenty of really nice places to stay um we also are associated with the efeo which is the french school and they have a research center so we can stay at the research center so if we're ground verifying artifact or archaeological sites from the LIDAR data, um, we wake up pretty early, usually kind of with the sunrise to get out before it starts getting too hot, um, usually by motorbike, sometimes by truck. And then I have my GPS all loaded up with the sites that I want to see and we kind of take off. And it's, it's a lot of fun, actually. We're on the back of motorbikes and riding through rural areas in Cambodia. And land property and land rights are very different there. So if there's a temple kind of essentially in someone's backyard, we'll just kind of roll up and, you know, tell them what we're doing, tell them where we think there might be a temple back there. And usually they're like, oh, yeah, like we found some sandstone. Like, let me show you. So then they show us. And it's really cool to have these experiences with all the kids are looking at us like, who are you? <laughs> what are you doing? And what's going That's on? awesome. You know, it was a small um, farm boy who ultimately showed here in Bingham the way to Machu Picchu. Oh, really? Very and that's nice. how he discovered it. Yeah, he, he stumbled upon a farmhouse. Um, well, I, yeah, I guess it was a farmhouse where they were living close to basically at Machu Picchu. And this kid was like, you know, I'll show you the way. I know of these old ancient structures sitting on this mountaintop. And here in Bingham followed this kid to one of the biggest archaeological discoveries in the world, possibly the biggest, right? Right. And I think that's, that's it becomes so important, too, because these communities that are living in these areas, I mean, these things aren't undiscovered. Like they know exactly kind of where things are and what's going on. Um, so we have to be really conscious about that and know that these things have living histories as well. So Angkor Wat was never forgotten about. It was always um, utilized as religious space by Korea. Um, and it has a really long history of use and occupation. So when we talk about kind of discovering these things, we have to bear in mind that we're not actually discovering these and many of these things have been known a very long time it's right. just new to us yeah uh yeah. is angkor wat still used as a restructure there are people that still attend yeah so there are sh- active shrines um yeah within the temple absolutely yeah. so so to get back on on your daily routine and, and activities i ellie and i were talking before i mean this is a 
our sort of our job our, that we want with this podcast is to promote travel. And it doesn't always have to be for a vacation. One thing that we want to make sure we people are aware of is if you're inspired to travel, you can also seek um, work opportunities to travel just like you have. So um, I guess my question would be, how would you explain to someone who maybe is in undergrad or just trying to figure out what they do? They know they love to travel. Why would they seek out archaeology as a profession? Why would they seek out archaeology as a profession? I guess <laughs> <laughs> um, if they're really interested in history and want to be on the cutting edge of that. Um, and also, not, not even just history, also conservation. So making sure that these sites are protected um, and you know, tourists aren't climbing all over the statues and ruining the statues. We do, yeah, like yeah, disclaimer, we do not promote uh, anyone doing that. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. I'm kidding. But um, there are a lot of different kind of things that are also tangential to archaeology. People can get involved in terms of a career path. If someone is interested in doing archaeology, my first recommendation would be to do a field school. Um, so that's when you go into the field, usually kind of six weeks to two months, uh, work with a professor on their archaeological site with a bunch of other students. They're a lot of fun. Um, they're all over the world. So you can basically pick whichever country you want to do it there. And that'll give you a really good taste and flavor of what it's like to be an archaeologist because it's not for everyone. Angkor is pretty, when we're staying in, in Siem Reap, it's pretty cushy, but Fakir is a little bit more um, remote. Yeah. All right. There's one hotel in town and this year they did some major upgrades. So we had hot electricity. Oh, was, those yeah. are some really nice. <laughs> Living yeah, in luxury. Really yeah. nice. Yeah. <laughs> So, so as I said, it's not for everyone, but a field school is a good way to get your feet. Right. It seems like an amazing way to experience the world in a way beyond, um, I guess, the commercialized, uh, I don't know, patterns that we see. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Build when, a connection. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. So whenever we're in the field, we're usually there for most field seasons run from a month to two months. Some are shorter, some are longer. But that really gives you a good opportunity to become immersed in the culture where you're working, get to know the locals, be working with locals. Um, and you get to see things that, I mean, some of the most remarkable things have just been wandering through the jungles with the villagers at Kaker who live in the jungle and the jungle is their livelihood. So, you know, they'll point out plants and say, oh, this is good to eat. This is not good to eat. And just, you know, seeing, being able to experience that with them is something that um, most people will never have the opportunity to do. Yeah, that's one of the things I wish I could go to and live there for a month and just get to know it and just stay with the locals. But if it's not a job, it's hard. to. Yeah, well, that's something that I'm trying to do with my Italian trip that I'm planning. I I don't think I'm going to stay in Rome or Florence. Um, I it's hard to want to skip those areas and I'm not going to skip them. I'm still going to visit them, but I want to just find cool villages that are located around those major cities and then stay there and eat at those restaurants and experience, you know, I I want to experience where the people who are working in Florence go to eat when they get home. If that, if that makes sense. So yeah. I don't know if I would recommend that in the rural areas of Cambodia. (laughs) So you know what, I guess, yeah, let's get into briefly the tourism of, of Cambodia. It still seems relatively difficult, not, I guess, to get to Angkor Wat, but what is it like for a tourist in Cambodia? So, I mean, if you're if you're in the major cities, so if you're in Phnom Penh or in Siem Reap, it's really easy. Um, you'll land at the airport. Um, you can get your visa before you arrive, or you can get it on arrival. I think it's thirty or thirty-five dollars US, and then um, they have all these tuk-tuks that are waiting, and they'll take you to your hotel. Usually, your hotel will actually send a tuk to pick you up, um, but if they don't, you can get it or a taxi, no problem, which will take you to your hotel. And then um, Siem Reap is really a town. There are a lot of amazing restaurants, basically any type of cuisine that you're interested in. Um, there's probably a really good option. Um, yeah, and then hotels make it really easy to go see the temples as well. Usually you'll hire a tuk-tuk driver for the day and he'll drop you off at one end of the t- temple and drive around and pick you up on the other end and finish uh, exploring and they they enjoy it. You see all these tuk-tuk drivers kind of playing hacky sack with each other while they're being greeted to come to the temple, <laughs> having a coconut. <laughs> and it doesn't seem oh, too fun. far to get there. It looks like it is. Oh, it's about five hours from the major city to Angkor Wat. No, no, no. Um, from Phnom Penh, but Siem Reap is essentially on top of. Oh, okay. 
and you can fly into either Phnom Penh or San Francisco. Oh, okay. Yeah, that airport's right there. Yeah. It's gonna... Yeah, it's like a 10-minute ride into town and then a 10-minute ride to the from town. Yeah, it makes me want to be an archaeologist. Yeah, <laughs> and so why, have you, why haven't you been to Machu Picchu yet? Oh, that's an excellent question. It's it's on my list. It's on my list. I was very surprised. So many places to go, so little time. Yes. I guess because I do so much of my work in Asia, most of my travel has been in Asia for the last five years or so, but it's time to branch out, that's for sure. Yeah, we're coming off a trip there, and I don't think you'll be disappointed. You'll probably take it in in a, in a way that we can't even fathom just yes. yeah, based on your, your professional experiences, so... I'm sure you'll have an amazing time. When you travel, do you actually do a little bit of research prior on some of like the, do you have like an inside <laughs> archaeological resource library that you can pull from? Oh, absolutely. Whenever I go to a site, usually, I mean, I'm familiar with a lot of them, but if I'm traveling in a region where I haven't done much research, I'll try to pull whatever I can find from from the sites. And so when I was in Sri Lanka, I went to Sikoria, which is a very cool archaeological site that we should look into. Um, but before I went, I wanted to read all of the research that had been done and couldn't find anything. There had been no kind of Western research done on, um, the site. And this is for various reasons, but it was, it was shocking. So I just actually met someone yesterday who's finishing her dissertation. He was like, you have to send me everything. It's <laughs> such an amazing site. And I couldn't really find out very much about it. So lots of research yet to be done. Yeah. That's so cool. this might this might send us off on a little tangent, but I guess it's okay. We're we're nearing an hour anyway. Are you familiar with the the guy Graham Hancock? Um, no. Tell me more. Um, he is a an archaeological journalist, and he's sort of lingering on the fringe sciences of archaeology. And he believes that I think just human civilization in general is about ten thousand years older than mainstream archaeology able to be. And he, okay. so he, I mean, I don't know enough and I've listened to him speak and he sounds convincing and he seems like he has geological data and, and or, or evidence and it makes some sense to me, but I don't, ultimately I don't know. And I've tried to read articles that counter him and, and get an idea of whether or not he is just full of it or if he actually has something that maybe, um, mainstream archaeology doesn't want to admit to yet i don't i don't know so check them out <laughs> I mean, I'll, t- I'll tell you this mainstream archaeology is not not admitted to something like that's well, no. silly like we all we all get excited about archaeological finds what i will say is that when you start hearing controversial things i would check to see if it's been published in a peer-reviewed journal um and essentially the way that that works is that's how we kind of police each other to make sure that what we're saying is scientifically accurate and correct. So we'll write a journal article and then it'll be sent out to three to five reviewers who'll return with comments and say, you know, this is completely wrong, like, or, you know, this is great, just, you know, fix these couple things. This doesn't quite make sense. Explain this further. And that's the way that we kind of police ourselves to make sure that the research that we're doing is good and accurate. So if you hear from, you know, an archaeologist who's a little bit on the fringes and they don't really have any peer-reviewed journals, it's Probably because the discipline um, is not quite on board. He has, he has no okay. uh, peer-reviewed journals published at yeah, all because so he that, cannot that's get them. Probably a so, <laughs> and so he's presenting evidence to suggest certain things, and then his defense is the reason that that he's not getting published or not um, being taken seriously is because that some of his evidence would then open up a whole new you know can of worms for what they already um, are theorizing about some particular civilization. No, we love that. That's, yeah. the, that's the whole point of All our right. work well, you, you, to present hypotheses. This clears it up for me because I, 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 get closer I just didn't know. And I, I was just <laughs> curious. So I guess if you have time one of these days, I'm sure you're very busy, but uh, look up, I have to look into look him. up Graham Hancock and let me know what you think. You, All right. Learned about him through Joe. He's on Joe Rogan's Joe podcast, Rogan. yes. So, I mean, not... Uh, okay. Maybe I'll listen to that podcast. So, well. so actually, he's on say. Joe Rogan's podcast with another guy called David Shermer, who is... And they debate archaeology. So, it's it's a guy named Graham Hancock, a guy named Randall Carlson, who are both... Arche- uh, Graham Hancock is an archaeological journalist. Randall Carlson is an actual archaeologist. And then David Shermer is the skeptic. And so they sit down on... Jo- Are you sure it's not David Schwimmer, the paleontologist? Yes, I'm positive. And so the three of them <laughs> sort of sit on Joe Rogan's podcast. It's a three-hour-long debate. 
and they just debate um, this archaeological evidence suggesting that certain civilizations were around 10,000 years prior than we think so think today. Uh, he provides geological evidence on um, markings on the Sphinx and all these different things. And it was, it was very interesting, even if it is complete BS coming from Graham Hancock, it was still really interesting to hear. So yeah, check it out. It's, it's one of his podcasts. Yeah. Are they All like right. advanced conspiracy theorists? Maybe. So it's hard to tell. I mean, if I'm not disciplined, I don't know. I don't know enough. And so I'm listening as someone just completely, you know, lacking the education. I'm like, this guy's making good points. And so here I am with the opportunity to ask an archaeologist and I did it. <laughs> well, as archaeologists, we're always looking kind of for the oldest this, the oldest that. So if you know, there were proper scientific evidence to support that we would, you know, yeah, welcome it right. and be excited about okay. it. Okay. Yeah. So. Very interesting. Yeah. Well, we're, we're getting things wrapped up. Do you have any, any sites in the future after Cocare that you really like are besides like Machu? <laughs> um, so we have quite a bit of work left to do in this, um, in this area. But um, moving forward, I'll probably start doing more comparative stuff. Some of my colleagues just started a research program at Dagon in Myanmar. Um, so I think it would be really interesting to do some comparative work between what we're seeing in terms of urbanism and modernism at Angkor and what they're only just um, starting to find out about Dagon. Because um, these are two kind of very comparative sites, same region of the world, both very extensive. So that, that'll be really interesting. And are we able to kind of follow you and all of our listeners? Are we able to follow you through social media some work as it's happening before the official comes out? Yeah, absolutely. So I post um, things from field work on Instagram, just plus in archaeology. So follow me there if you're interested in seeing work that we're doing. We'll share your page. All right. And you have, do you have any other social media or websites that you'd like to share? Um, and then I guess other than that, I have my, my, uh, my website, which is just sarahclausen.ca. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. This was fun. So that was a really, that was an awesome snapshot into her life and her work. Very unique. And I am just getting more and more fascinated with this LiDAR technology. I cannot wait to see what it uncovers um, in, in future sites around the world. Oh, me too. And it's really, there's just so many different applications for it because they're using it a lot in autonomous vehicles to kind of test surroundings and see rather than using video. It's really intriguing. Yeah, yeah. And and so Cambodia may be next on my list um, after I get back from Italy. And I Googled, Googled the Temple of Kokur and it's really impressive in its own right. I think I I'm going to have to reach out to her when I'm ready to explore some of these areas one day. I know I'm really jealous of her knowledge of all of like the different ancient civilizations and ruins that exist all over the world. Cause she seems like she has fantastic resources to be able to look up intricate details. Yeah. Yeah. Really cool stuff. So, so please give us a rating on iTunes or Google music, Google podcast, Spotify, whatever you're listening on. We really appreciate that. And we like to hear from our fans slash people that just listen and our lurkers and check us out on Instagram. We actually post some of our own photos as well. Some from our own travels and just reach out via email, via Facebook, whatever you like, whatever's easiest. We're happy to talk to anyone.